Amen. During World War I, there were Turkish soldiers that were trying to steal a flock of sheep from a hillside near Jerusalem. Talk about the long-standing trouble that Israel experienced through the centuries from its neighboring nations all the way to today. And in that case, the shepherd had been sleeping. And suddenly, he was awakened to see his sheep being driven off and stolen by these soldiers. They were there all the way to the other side of the ravine. He could not by now hope to recapture the flock by force single-handedly. It was too late. But suddenly, he had a thought. Standing up on the side of the ravine, he put his hand out uh, and started speaking. He gave this peculiar call that he had given to the sheep through the years. That's how he used to gather the sheep. And so the sheep now hear the voice of the shepherd. They listen, they hear it again, and they turn and they now rush down on the side of the ravine and put up all the way to the other side where the shepherd voice was. Quite impossible now for the soldiers to stop the animals from listening to the voice of the shepherd. Shepherd was away with them to a safe place before the soldiers could make up their minds to even chase him back. Why? It is all because the sheep, the true sheep, knew their master's voice. Last time we began exploring the theme of Jesus as the good shepherd. Today we're going to look at some responses to the Good Shepherd. And we see from our text that many respond like wolves and Pharisees by wanting to kill the shepherd. By wanting to ravishly take the sheep. And few are those sheep that, like those sheep in our story, listen, follow the shepherd. And by doing so, they receive everlasting life. By doing so, they now enjoy true safety in the hands of the good shepherd. So we're still in the section of the Gospel of John, uh, rotating around the Jewish festivals. We are in the Temple of Jerusalem. There are several speeches that Jesus is doing almost at the end of his public ministry. We're almost approaching the final Passover. And Jesus is, in other words, wrapping up his messages in the midst of this mounting unbelief from the Jews and this final climactic year of conflict with the Pharisees. A result of the failure from the Jews to recognize their Messiah, Jesus Christ, now he come, here he comes to this climactic rejection of the Messiah, of the Good Shepherd. Uh, Jesus will end this ministry in a few chapters from now. And the rest of the gospel, he will spend his time with the twelfth. Actually, the 11th. And uh, last time we looked at a good shepherd. Now let's expound on the responses to the good shepherd. From both sheep and wolves. Sadly, however, from the text we read, the focus seems to be much more on the wolves. By this time and since several weeks, you heard that Jesus gradually moves from facing opposition to now... Outright persecution, murderous threats from the wolves. And the wolves in our story, the mounting unbelief, it's from the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, and particularly the religious leaders. Jesus has come to expose, condemn something that was already there. But now he's showing for their true color, these people are wolves. And the effect of Jesus on the crowd is to show that the Jews 
the, the, the unbelieving Jews do not actually belong to God's flock. They are not part of God's people. And so in between our texts, Jesus does this. We'll see next Sunday, the last miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. But these chapters, again, results to the end of his public ministry. Now the gospel will focus on a more private ministry to the true 12 sheep, the 11 sheep of the Lord, leading then to the crucifixion, Jesus dying on the cross. So the cross is becoming more and more of a reality by this time. This is already the third time Jesus has to respond to the debate with the religious leaders and the unbelieving Jews. And, and what is the response to the shepherd that we see in, the, in our text? That while the majority of religious Jews think that Jesus is not their Messiah, they think actually that he is a blasphemer. That he, he must die for it. They make plans and provision to kill their Messiah. Some few are the sheep that still believe. And because of their faith, because of hearing the voice of the shepherd, because of obeying and following the shepherd, they shall never die. Jesus Christ gives them the promise that no one will snatch them from the Father's hand. That is the beauty of our text that will come at the end. But first we have to expound on the rejection by the wolves. That is the response to the good shepherd. That the wolves, first of all in our text we see in verse 22 to 26, the wolf and essentially, uh, the Pharisees, they think that Jesus is not the Messiah. They ask this question, are you the Messiah? Right? But they already know the answer by this point. The point is that they don't want to recognize him as the Messiah. That their unbelief lies behind the question that they ask Jesus at the Feast of Dedication. Verse 22. Feast of Dedication is that uh, Jewish feast of the Hanukkah, Hanukkah the Feast of Light. We already saw that in weeks ago that was supposed to remember the, the deliverance from, from the, 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 the corruption brought in the temple by this uh, Antichrist in the future, but also this figure in the past, Antiochus Epiphanes, which is told in Daniel. It's winter. The temple, however, is still corrupt. Everyone is still in the dark. While this is supposed to be a feast of light and the last feast... Remember, before Jesus dies, the Passover is mentioned here. We are coming closer and closer to the last week of Jesus' life. And now in verse 20, 24, Jesus doesn't receive any welcome as, as he comes to this feast in the temple. The Jews are surrounding him like a mob. They press him to give an answer. How long will you keep us in doubt? How long will you keep us in suspense? This is a way of saying that Jesus is supposedly keeping from the crowds from coming to a conclusion about who he is. And the problem is not Jesus, by the way. The problem is their unbelief. Jesus had already given them plenty of evidence of who he is. The implication is that they are frustrated, they are annoyed and bothered by Jesus. And they say, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly, straight out, come up in public. Now, this, as you obviously imagine, is not a genuine question. They are only trying to find charges for their plot to kill him. So at least we have some grounding. So at least we have something to accuse him of. But their unbelief is proving that they are actually wolves in the story. They are not the sheep. The reply of Jesus in verse 25 is very dismissive. I told you already, but you did not believe. 
And why you cannot believe? Because you are not among the true sheep. Horatius Bonar, which was a, a Puritan writer, he said, In all unbelief there are these two things, a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. I mean, what is the definition of sarcasm? Isn't that the way that some, some people say a question, ask a question, but they are actually asking the opposite of what they are asking They're in order to insult or mock someone? I was facing this uh, sometimes even for my students as I teach in Franklin. That there's some of that sarcasm going on. This is what the unbelieving crowds here have are, are been doing with Jesus. And you have saw it already weeks ago with all their mockery. It is obvious that their question is no longer driven by genuine concern. Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? The tone and the aggression that springs out of a desire to trap him in his word. To get rid of him. To let him get in the open so that we can have an indisputable basis to bring a charge against him. They need some excuse to kill or arrest Jesus. Friends, that tells you that you either love or hate Jesus Christ, but also that you either love or hate the brethren. If you hate a sheep, if you hate a believer, then you obviously cannot have a place in eternity with believers. Scripture tells us that by this, people will know that we are Jesus' disciples. By what? By the love that we display for one another. And the test of being a true believer, therefore, is that you love other believers. That you want them good. You protect them from harm, as the Good Shepherd does. Not that you, like the crowds here, mock them. Seek to trap them in their words. Scheme in the dark against them. Seek to put them in danger or wish them harm. Friends, whenever we make others, and we encounter people like that, that they come with opposition, that, that want to... Like Jesus here, make him walk on eggshells, wanting to trap them in their words, watch them fall so they may criticize them, have something to say about them. It's clear that that is not the Savior's behavior, but it's the behavior of the, the enemies of the Saviors, the wolves. Now, some will say to me, well, that's placing a requirement on, on faith. That's kind of a sort of legalism. Are you saying, if I don't love the, the brethren, then I'm not a true disciple? Well, the tree is known by its fruit. I was reading this morning in my quiet time, 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and do not sin, for some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your own shame. In other words, if you claim to love God, but you hate your neighbor, that's already a negative response to the good shepherd. That places you, like the wolves, in wanting to hate the, the, the true sheep of the Lord, and by doing that, even the shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. But the deeper issue here is in verse 30 to 39. That these wolves think essentially that Jesus is not God. That they're denying the fact that not only that Jesus is the Messiah, but they think that he's a blasphemer because he, has the, he calls himself God. And we see that in verse 30. They think that uh, to say, I am my father are one. It's a blasphemy. This is the controversial statement right here. I am my father are one. That is a significant statement we already pointed out weeks ago. Alluding to the, especially the response of the Jews. That, that, that shows us that these are loaded words. I am the father are one. Adonai Echad. That is the, the Hebrew word that you find in the, in the law of Moses. That God is one. 
And that's how God had revealed himself in the Old Testament. This oneness of God doesn't just refer to the unity that Jesus has with the Father in terms of purpose and action. No, Jesus is one with the Father in heart, mind, yes. But there's something more than that. That the reaction of the, 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 the crowds that they want to stone him as a blasphemer shows us that there's something in this statement that is far greater. He's saying that I am God. Just as a choir singing in harmony, or you go to a marriage ceremony where you, you celebrate two becoming one. There's something more than unity of purpose in the statement of Jesus, I and the Father are one. Jesus is claiming identity with the Father. He's saying that he's one with God. The wording has not only implication for being God, but even for the Trinity. That uh, the Greek text here is pointing not just to the Jesus and the Father being one person, but one very thing. That is the, the way that in the Greek it's rendered. The Son and the Father belong to the same category. They are God. They are essential in their unity. This is again another proclamation of the deity of Christ. So when you deny that there is unity between the Father and the Son in their nature, in their divine nature, you are denying God's word here. I and the Father are one. Now their oneness, now don't, don't misunderstand, doesn't imply that now there's, there's, that there's different persons between the Father and the Son. I know that the Unitarian heresy, for example, they suggest that, and other heresies. No, we have the triune God. We have one God, but two different, three different persons. Why is that? The text says right here. Look at what it says. I and the Father are one. And that are is plural. So there's a unity, one God, but there's also a diversity of person. Two persons and still one God here. And we could say the same of the Holy Spirit elsewhere in the New Testament. And the reaction of the Jews is important in verse 31. They, they take exception to the statement. That, that, that their reaction proves that this is a declaration of His deity. The Jews understood it well, and so should we. That they wanted to stone Him, and Jesus responds sarcastically, For, for what good works you want to stone me? To show that they, they, they have a lack of grounding for their accusation. And here's the concession. We are not stoning you for your good works. But here's the, the, the anger here. Verse 33. Because you are blaspheming. This is a sacrilegious claim. I and the Father are one. This is a disrespectful, denigrating reference to God. And to you yourself are making yourself equal with God. You make yourself out to be. You manufacture a title that doesn't belong to any human being. You're just a man. That's how they think Jesus is. And you're calling yourself God. You claim to be God. That is the mind of the opponents of Jesus. The reason that Jesus is blaspheming is because he's claiming divine prerogatives to himself. And he's just a man. Now that will be usurping God's honor in their mind. In this case, however... We have to keep the perspective of the, the fact that this is not the first time Jesus comes out with these controversial words. We saw this all over the Gospel of John. You see, the deity of Jesus doesn't just rest in this passage, but it's multiple direct and indirect claims to be God that already the, the Gospel of John, if you remember, has already given you throughout. You remember when 
in chapter 8, before Abraham was, what did Jesus say? I am. All right? He also claimed to be the Son of God in chapter 5. We started in chapter 1 with the very same word. Although he was a man, he declares himself to be God multiple times. I mean, why would you ask that question? Why would he claim himself to be God and yet he is a man? And that is what George Whitfield helpfully says. Jesus was God and man in one person. And why, why would, would he need it to be both God and both man? That God and man might be happy together again. That is ultimately where uh, the hope of the gospel rests in the fact that Jesus needed to be both God and man. And we already alluded this weeks ago. It is, is it undeniable that Jesus claims to be God even by the mouth of his opponents? And this is not a blasphemy. This is plain truth. And the Jews understood blasphemy, however, that anyone who claims to be God should die. What is driving them then? Same thing that drives bad religions to do anything bad. You think about Hamas and all that they're doing. They, they, the Muslim religion makes them believe that if they kill Jews, that if they kill infidels, they get heavenly rewards. Somehow they're defending God. I think about Catholics during the uh, medieval time of the Inquisitions, all the way to the Nazis. People do, that's what the Jews are doing here, they do, do what they're told by their superiors. And they think that the, the, the moral responsibility is removed somehow. To, to, to contribute to the interest of a religious ladder of the Pharisees that is rotten. And they want to now stone this innocent man, Jesus Christ, and they think that they're doing a righteous act. People killing believers thinking that they're doing God's will. I mean, why do we think it's so strange that Satan uses religion to cause damage to the truth? It is a great, actually, opportunity for Satan to use the zeal, the blind zeal of these Jews without intimate knowledge of the love of God that is visible outwardly in the way you treat, as we said, one another. That is the way in which prejudice blind the mind of even the most religious people, like in our stories. The enemies of God, they act and reason wrongly because of their willful ignorance of the truth. And it's nothing short of a radical work of God to save anyone like a wolf to realize that Jesus' claim was true. But what does it mean that God is one? That I and the Father are one? Well, it surely means that, yes, we have two different persons, but they share with the divine essence. Christ shares with the divine essence with the Father. In particular, God is still one. Still undivided, still unique. He's not composed of parts. You know, there's parts of the Holy Spirit is God. Parts is the, the, the Son is God. There's a unified whole. When we say we believe in the Trinity, we, we still uphold the fact that God is one. And yet there's a mystery that uh, nothing in this created world can help us to understand. That Jesus Christ is indeed one with the Father. And we accept this truth by faith. However, these Jews are not doing this. They deny the signs as well. In verse 34, uh, as Jesus answers to their critics, he says, Isn't it written in your law, you are gods? I mean, that, that is a very controversial statement. Obviously, some have looked to this New Testament passage. I think of Mormonism in particular. And, uh, and they say, okay, Jesus is saying you are gods, and therefore polytheism, many gods, now is the truth. However, it contradicts what Jesus says 
I and the Father are one. When we say that we believe in one God, monotheism, we believe that it says one God. Jesus here is quoting from the Psalms. And he's using in that context of the Psalm and frames that context that the Psalm is, is a call to the leaders of Israel to be judged righteously the people of Israel. So Jesus used this verse and says, if man can be called, you are gods when you judge God's people, all the more Jesus can indeed use that title. He's rightly called the Son of God. The, port, the point is that certain people were called gods, and just as men of God received this divine word, and therefore we're called gods in that context of Psalm, how much more is it permissibly for the Son of God to refer himself as one with the Father? Remember, Jesus is answering the charge of blasphemy here. Israeli leaders were called gods for being agents of the revelation of God. So if Jesus himself, the Son of God, calls himself God, one with the Father, and even more than these uh, Old Testament cases, he has that title. And he is God, rightly. It's not a blasphemy. It's not a blasphemy. And, and then notice he says, Scripture cannot be broken. In that verse uh, right there, he says, Scripture cannot be broken. Look at what a high honor. Jesus puts on the scriptures it cannot be broken in other words he's claiming jesus claiming scripture are without error they cannot be changed they are true completely and therefore the scripture now becomes binding on the conscience of all those who hear the bible so if we like the pharisee claim to be worshipers of the judeo-christian god the only true god we must accept the testimony of the word of god concerning all things and in this case concerning the fact that Jesus is God indeed and the thinking of Jesus verse 35 to 36 is this that it is plausible that Jesus claims to be the son of God on that basis now the, the text there says sanctified obviously Jesus did not need any sanctification he alone was perfect he alone was holy no, what that sanctified means is that he's set apart or consecrated to do the work of the Father. And he's also sent by the Father. And then Jesus gives them in verse 37 to 39 all the proofs of his claims. He's not just telling them things. He's saying, look at my miracles. However, they don't like that and they just want to kill him. But Jesus is able to escape from them, verse 39, by virtue of his deity. It says, he escaped out of their hands in a supernatural way. Now, there, there's a saying in, in, in law that ignorance of the law excuses no one. So the question here is, who is the true ignorance of God's law? Is Jesus ignorance of the law of God or are the Pharisees ignorant? I want to say Jesus has a very brilliant way of defending himself here. Because he pawns that, the fact that, if he is blaspheming, then also Psalm, that Psalm that he quoted, you are gods, was also blaspheming. You see that? You are gods. What Jesus is doing here is he's deducing things from the smaller things of the scripture to the greatest. If the Israelites were called gods, then there can be no real objection when the Son of God comes on earth and he is indeed one with the Father. If the prophets could receive such label, why are you surprised, O Pharisees, that Jesus claims for himself even greater titles? 
Jesus is not simply telling God's word, by the way. He is that scripture that cannot be broken. He is the word of God, the logos that we saw in chapter 1. So he has all the authority in the world to claim to be God. This uh, teaches us that we should be very careful of treating lightly teachings of scriptures about things that might be unclear to us. And there's plenty of examples of this. We should not dismiss something unbiblical when in reality we have not examined the issue. That is the problem. The blind zeal of the Pharisees. They have not looked at the depth to realize that actually they're in the wrong, that Jesus is actually in the right. And we cannot ignore God's word when it doesn't suit our understanding. And in this case, the primary issue is this. The issue in which salvation, by the way, depends. That Jesus needed to be God. If you deny the deity of Jesus, then like, like these Jews, you are forfeiting your salvation. Now, I want to also clarify, just because you believe Jesus is God, it doesn't make you a believer. Okay? It's faith in Christ's death for you, for, it's for your sins that makes you a believer. However, if that death was not the death of a person who was fully God and fully man, then you will not be able to be forgiven of your sin. You will not be able to have this reconciliation between God and man. That is why it's a foundational belief. Because all the crucial beliefs that lead to salvation rest upon this truth underneath. Now, the reaction obviously continues to be harsh from the wolves. And that is our third point. We come to chapter 11. By this time, we'll see next week, there is this resurrection of Lazarus, the last greatest miracle of Jesus. But what is the response of these wolves? Not only they don't want to hear the, word of the, 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 the voice of the shepherd, but the Pharisees have come to the conclusion that Jesus must die. That indeed he must, but for a whole different purpose, die. They want to kill him because they don't like him, but Jesus has to die because he has to die for the nation to grant us salvation. Now, obviously, the Pharisees are driven by jealousy. But God can use their jealousy even to fulfill their purpose. Let's look at uh, chapter 11 now. We come to verses 46 to 48. They heard the miracle of Jesus. He, he raised Lazarus. And yet, what is their response? Right in front of it. They get furious. The fact that D Jesus does miracle apparently is a problem to them. They fear insurrection, they fear a Roman repercussion, and they fear the, the destruction of the nation of Israel. And paradoxically, that's exactly what will take place as a result of their sin. The thing they fear the most will materialize in 70 AD when Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed, leveled to the ground, the entire city by the Romans. The thing they fear the most materialize all because of their unforgivable sin of murdering the Savior and also persecuting the disciples all the way to the Acts of the Apostles. However, despite all their wickedness, God's plan is still at work. That is the beauty of this, uh, these verses. Uh, look at verse 49 to 52. Even in their treachery, they're fulfilling the plan of God. Here you have Caiaphas, the high priest of the, the, the wolves, the, the, the religious leaders. He's very a bad guy. And he, you, you will find him later in chapter 18 when he, he comes on trial with Jesus. And verse 50, he, he says this. It, was, it is indeed an expedient. It is better. It is to our advantage it is profitable or useful or beneficial for us if one man shall die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. 
Now, on face value, this looks like a very utilitarian way of, of dealing with this problem. Even if it involves killing this innocent guy, it's better that we get rid of Jesus. So, yes, it's bad to kill Jesus, but if you, if you don't kill this Jesus, then you will, will all be killed by the Romans, okay? And what he means was, it is better to get rid of him before our nations get destroyed with the rebellion and the, the suppression by the Romans. However, John comments something here that is significant. He says, the real reason behind this, this statement is because he prophesied about Jesus dying for the nation of Israel. In other words, even if he's ignorant, even if he's wicked in his intention, he foretold the future event of Christ's death. He foretold also the gathering as one of the children of God scattered abroad. That is referring to us who are non-Jewish people. Now we can, through the death of this one, be, belong to the nation, belong to the one people of God scattered abroad. In other words, the high priest, he, he's only expressing a common sense statement. He's driven by political expediency. He has bad motives. He wants to get rid, Jesus, get rid of Jesus, lest the Romans get rid of all of us. But he was unconsciously echoing the statement of Jesus elsewhere. Matthew 10, 45. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. He died for God's people. Jews and Gentiles. There will come a time where there will be neither Jews or Greek. All of us will be one in Christ. And that is the ultimate eternal advantage of the sheep. That even the wolf with all of their treacheries cannot stop. Years ago I remember of this girl that was happening to pass by an open air preacher. And she made a YouTube video. And she was a atheist, and she was obviously mocking the guy. Look at this guy, he's got these weird signs, and he's, he's, sh he's shouting on the street. And she did this video on YouTube, and it got millions of views. What, did, what she didn't realize that she was actually indirectly sharing the gospel with mil millions of viewers online. Her motive was to mock the open-air preacher, and instead... Like people started to hear about, he's saying that you can get saved with Jesus and, and, and people start to get saved. <laughs> that is the irony here. That is pretty much what is happening here with the Kaifa, the high priest and all the other wolves. They want to get rid of Jesus and yet they're fulfilling a greater plan. Isn't it interesting that God's plan fulfills itself even through the wicked, to their unawareness. Even out of their lips and bad intention, God's purpose is still fulfilled. Now, this doesn't make the, these uh, religious leaders less responsible for their crime, okay? Don't misunderstand me. There are people out there who love to do evil. They cannot but hate the truth. Here you have the innocent Jesus and their cruelty side by side. They have this murderous spirit. And that sadly, we see that all over. That people hate Christians. They want to do things against Christians. And people get desensitized in their conscience, by the way, when they get to that level that the high priest is getting here. They cease to realize how serious sin is. Today, our society has plenty of examples like this. We justify in the name of a law of the survival of the fittest. Uh, you know, you can kill babies in the wombs. 
You can actually pragmatically treat someone else at work badly so that you get advanced. You got to do what you got to do because they are rejecting God. And when you reject God, you reject, you reject the image of God, then anything is allowable. And the depravity comes to the surface like here. You remove God, you remove the image of God. All of a sudden, all of the treacheries in the world become allowable. And the world that we live lies in the power of the evil one. And so I'm inviting you, don't buy to people out there who have this worldview. No matter how much they justify it, no matter how, as time goes on, it will be widespread in our society. Even in the name of love. <laughs> Friends, true love does no harm to its neighbor. The text here is showing us the extreme wickedness of human nature when it's left to itself. Even if it dresses itself in religious clothes. William Gullen, who is a Puritan, says, The devil is a great student of the divinity. You see, they attach themselves outwardly to ceremony. They're the high priest, right? But their heart is full of sin. He is trying to rationalize this wicked action, no matter how devious. He has absolutely no regard to the right of the individual, Jesus Christ. And isn't this the definition of tyranny? That the high priest is sacrificing the individual rights on the altar of convenience. And the same pharisaical spirit continues today. And you can have a, a religious cloth, but then under the carpet there's all sort of things. All sort of things that you allow. And inwardly, the, the works are rotten. There's a lot of rottenness in the high priest here. And I want to say, there will be a lot of sinners in heaven, yes. But those sinners will be saved by grace, turning away from their sins. And yes, they might have been outwardly worse than the high priest. But no hypocrite will make it to heaven, especially a high priest. That the nature has not been transformed by Christ. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into heaven. And the guilt of the Pharisees is clear here. They want to get rid of the righteous. And yet, the encouraging aspect is, even with all their wickedness, that nothing can dwarf God's ultimate good plan. Not even the wicked, not even the evil means that, that they are using. All of that is allowed by God. It has some temporary space. The, the most ironic thing here, friends, is that the wicked high priest is like that atheist heckler on the YouTube video. He is unwittingly summarizing the gospel. He doesn't want to do that, but he says that it is indeed good that one innocent man dies on the cross to take our judgment on his shoulders and save the entire nations, the true Israel, from this eternal destruction. That no matter the bad motives, God still gets the glory. That every knee will bow, even the knees of the wicked who have worked in the darkness against the Lord and the Savior. But they will bow for their destruction. So these words from the high priest informs us, even as we look at our nation today, how Christ doesn't save us, especially wicked leaders, from a political disasters. The religious leader of that day wanted a crave to have a physical or spiritual position to be kept by killing someone, even if the, because the end justified the means, right? No. He saves us eternally. Not from a physical destruction, but from eternal destruction. That is the key element that the Jews and the, the high priest missed totally in their uh, factoring here. This whole story, the plot, 
They think themselves so powerful. And yet they are just tool, ready to be dumped in the trash once they fulfill their purpose. Friends, don't miss that. It will pro profit you like this dead religious leaders nothing if you gain the whole world and by compromises you lose your soul. What they do here is they excommunicate and persecute Jesus. At the end of the chapter 11, they plot to kill Jesus. Jesus has to withdraw before the Passover. I mean, we, we are in the prelude of his death here. They actually require that if anyone knows where Jesus is, they may report him and they might seize him and they might kill him. Roger Williams once said, It is possible that since I hunt, I may be hunting for the life of my Savior. And the blood of the Lamb of God? Question mark. Have I fought against many differing sorts of conscience? It is beyond all possibility and hazard that I, I have not fought against God and that I have not persecuted Jesus in some of them, some of the people of Jesus. See, if only the Jewish leaders would have understood that, if only would have had half the scruples that this Williams had, then it would have been better for them. Now, notice again, Jesus by this time is an outcast, excommunicated, he's a criminal, he's unwelcomed. This is the price for telling the truth. There is a spiritual battle. When you tell the truth, Satan rages. I was reading a book about uh, revivals in Welsh and right now, and boy, what the preacher said to go through. The, 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 when Satan comes to the picture with all sort of attacks when the truth is preached and he tries to get after those who preach the truth this is the price if you tell the truth you live godly lives you will face persecution and God sympathizes with those who are unjustly treated by bad religion just like Christ was unjustly treated here he went through this before us he warned us and he wants us to treasure this opportunity not to shrink back but to share the truth and to do so before it's too late this whole feast of Anaka was lighting Jerusalem with candles okay people were supposed to remember their deliverance the light of Christ is shining in the dark world and he's Jesus is about to go away darkness is about to come the passion of Christ is about to begin there's a time when, Jesus, when people will seek God, and it will be too late, because the light will be off. So you have an opportunity to come to Christ, which could end in a moment. You answer His call now. And that's the beauty of our last point. That the wolves are doing all these things in the dark, but the believer, the true sheep, the encouraging part of our text, what do they do? They believe in Jesus. And here we are, several texts there listed for you, for you, that unlike the believing Jews, some do indeed believe and are forever saved. Now in complete contrast with the wolves, verse 27, the, 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 Jesus addresses the, the true sheep that are facing troubles, just like he's facing troubles already, because if they get associated with Jesus by now, they will face confusion, fear, persecution. But he wants to comfort the heart of the sheep. And he says, my sheep hear my voice. The first thing you notice right there is the sheep belong to Jesus. The, the sheep are chosen by Jesus. But what are they characterized by, the sheep? They hear my voice and follow me. They recognize that voice of the shepherd. And verse 28, he now gives them a promise. The true sheep 
The true believers have eternal life. And they shall never perish. They will never get lost. Interesting that how, as we saw with Caiaphas, he utilized this way of saying, this reference to Jesus perishing in the place of the nation. But now Jesus died for the true sheep. The reason the sheep will be safe, however, is because of the shepherd. He will die for them. Zechariah 13 has this prophecy, by the way. Zechariah 13, 7 says, I will strike the shepherd and I will scatter the sheep. That is foreshadowing the arrest of Jesus, which, by the way, is coming. It's a matter of a few weeks away in our timetable in the gospel. When in Gethsemane, Jesus gets arrested, the, the, the disciples are flying away. You see, there's a cost for our salvation. That the shepherd had to die for the sheep. We saw that last week. The point is that none of us can pay such cost. We're like the disciples. We, we, we go away when the, the testing come. We cannot earn it. We cannot keep ourselves from perishing under the, the weight of these wolves. Yet we don't perish because Jesus perished at the cross for the salvation of God's people. And we shall not perish by any means. In other words, we will never be lost. Never, ever. Look at the promise there. We are protected for good because no one will pluck them out or slash, snatch them out from my hand. No one will snatch them from the hand of the shepherd. Everything is included in that no one. Whether you face death, whether you face the challenges of your sin, whether you face the attacks from Satan, intending to steal you as a soul. But you belong to the shepherd. What shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one will snatch them from my hand. Remember the story we began with. No wolf will be able to steal the sheep from the good shepherd. He repeats this promise in verse 29. In case there's doubts in the face of all these attacks from Satan, the tricks from the wolves. No one can snatch believers from the end of Jesus. Why? Not because we are holding on to Jesus, but because Jesus is holding on to us. He has this perfect link with the Father. We have been given to the Son by the Father, according to what we saw in weeks ago, election. Leo Morris says, our continuance in eternal life depends not on our feeble holding on to Christ, but on His firm grip on us. That in the midst of all this mounting opposition, in the midst of all this Threats from the wolves. I mean, it's, it's threatful to be in the face of wolves. And, and God's mercy yeah, and, and the call to salvation of the good shepherd still goes out. Come to me. Look at the name by which Christ calls through believers. He calls us my sheep. That's why we are in the sight of the shepherd. That's why we should give us comfort in the midst of attacks from wolves. The shepherd calls the sheep to be, therefore, totally dependent on the shepherd. This come, the, the call of the shepherd comes in one of the most reassuring passages of Scripture. That they, no one will snatch them from the Father's hand. As a Catholic coming to Christ, these verses to me sounded too good to be true. Are you telling me that I will be forever safe in the hands of Christ? Are you, t are you saying that I will be forever saved? This is unthinkable, by the way, in the Catholic system. 
No one can. That is proudful to actually say those words. But this is scripture. And therefore, if it's scripture, it cannot be broken. And if therefore, if it's scripture, we must trust these words with our very life. That whenever the attacks from the, the, the evil one comes, that if the good shepherd dies, nobody can keep us from. We are his. He has sovereign authority over us as a shepherd. And remember, sovereign authority of a shepherd is not a bad shepherd. It is a good shepherd who loves you. And therefore, you can trust him in the midst of all your doubts. That you can rejoice and you don't worry about the attacks. Any of the shaking of the nations that we might see in coming months and years. And the scattering of the many, even among the professing Christians. He should not shake us. That no one will snatch you if you're safe in the arm of Jesus. The text here is showing us the vast privilege that has been given to us from the Good Shepherd. Are you afraid? Are there times that you, you, be, you become frightened? Scared about the future, uncertain about life, in trouble, under any attacks from Satan, which sometimes come in the mind. The solution is to reach out in faith, to lend your hand to Christ, that he promised that he'll keep it from eternal life. What we gather from this particular call to salvation in John is that God wants us to be certain of our salvation. He doesn't want us to be shaken left and right. I know there are churches out there that say that you can, you can be a believer and you can lose your salvation, okay? Here comes or a mortal sin or whatever and you're done. Just as it is not good for a false believer who has not understood and internalized the good news by clinging to Christ through faith and turning away from sin and being granted that grace to then be completely transformed, that is the first error. There's also another error. If you're a true believer... And you're constantly wondering whether you are actually saved or not. And you're tossed to and fro in the, in the waves of, of the ocean. That promise for, from our text, it's for you. It is handy for your case. The point of Jesus is clear. It is undeniable and is undeletable. That is the beauty that I had to wrestle in the first months where I came to Christ. That if Christ holds you. You will never be lost. And that grants you so much confidence and assurance as you face all sort of trials, despair, temptation, depression, whatever it is. There's wonder in this unbreakable promise that we just read. No one will snatch from the Father's hand. It is not a promise that we will never suffer. That is not what Jesus told us. It, it remains, however, a wonder that when we truly realize what it means, it seems too good to be true. That no one can snatch you from his hand. That your soul is kept eternally. That is still true because scripture is unbreakable. It is the task of Jesus as the good shepherd, friends, to preserve you. If you are true sheep, he will preserve you until the end. No one will snatch you from his hand. He will keep you. He will hold you fast. No matter if you even wonder at times that you shall never be lost. That's why to claim you can lose your salvation is a slap in the face, okay? Through this clear, compelling promise from the Word of God. If you are in Christ, you put on the helmet of salvation in this spiritual warfare with the devil. Otherwise, you'll not be able to stand. And God is not glorified by, by a true believer who is 
constantly in doubt. But again, the believers, uh, the remaining part of our text, they are acknowledging the miracles, unlike the wolves. Jesus is going, verse 40 of chapter 10, to the spot of John the Baptist, and the, the, John the Apostle had been called right there, and, and there's people who are believing in Jesus. Why? Because John did none of these miracles, but you, Jesus, did them. Perhaps they, they were disciples of John, and they are now trusting in Christ. So what do we bring home out of these this, uh, responses to the shepherd? How are you going to respond to the shepherd this morning? Uh, obviously, we have a great part of our text that shows us wolves, and there's a little part that shows us the sheep. The shepherd wants to meet the sheep, but before he meets the sheep, he has to walk over, he has to protect, he has to deal with the countless wolves that are gathering around him. Sent by none other but Satan himself. That time is running out for this shepherd. Enemies have multiplied. It is indeed a frightening prospect that you and I know where it leads to. You and I know that the cross is coming. And yet in the midst of all this chaos and in the midst of all this confusion, so many miracles and words from Christ, people still reject him in unbelief. And that is true back then and it's true today. They deny the fact that he is God. They deny the fact that he is the Messiah. They have a form of zealous religion that is ready to kill true followers of Christ in the name of God or in the name of a sacred duty. I mean, isn't that what Muslims do with Hamas? I was watching this past week. There was this, uh, this guy who called his parents and says, Hey, mom, dad, I killed a Jew. I killed his children. And... I'm so proud of doing this. It's almost like a godly action. And he was requiring at the phone call his parents to say, you know, son, we're proud of you. But this is the same even Jews did with Jesus. Catholics in centuries past that have done toward the servants of God. The moral of the story for the Pharisees, the wolves, their dishonest murder is that people should not be so quick to claim God as their own and to defend the honor of God. And they turn into a zealot. But, but it's a dangerous zealot. Why? Because he's a hypocrite who has not understood the truth. And, and now he's, he wants to act in the name of God by killing Jesus, by persecuting the true sheep. God will ask one day to all these wolves, what have you done? What have you done with my beloved sheep? That's what he will say. What have you done? Abel's blood cries from the ground. And Cain has to give an account. As you have done this to one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it to me. And it's not just referring when Jesus says this to good things that you do to believers. But even bad things. Even withholding good to others, believers. The warning is strong. From scripture. Psalm 50 verse 18 to 22 when you see a thief, you join with him. You throw your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought that I was exactly like you. That, that, that goes for the high priest. I'm doing the honor of God by killing Jesus. Consider this. This is the end of Psalm 50 verse 22. Consider this you forget God or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Blood is on the hand of the wolves. Can there be any worse judgment than what the sin of the Pharisees deserve? 
If all that a person does, like the high priest, is plotting in jealousy, dividing and scattering the true sheep of the Lord that he's supposed to take care of, to satisfy wishes of depraved religious corporate ladders, they will share the judgment of the Pharisees. Words, eternal judgment in hell, near the lake of fire. God is jealous, however, that is the beauty of our text, over the true sheep. That he goes out of his way to send the wolf away. And that he holds the true sheep. That they may never be snatched away or be lost by the hands of wolves. Why? Because the shepherd dies for the sheep. And the sheep now turn to him in faith. Yes, judgment is coming with the wolves. But we are spared the judgment because the shepherd dies for us. And there's a chance, obviously, for the sheep in all of this story, in front of the wolves. And, I mean, a sheep is defenseless. We are defenseless. Perhaps you're getting scared. Perhaps you're getting frightened. Perhaps you're afraid. That is what happened in our text. What are they going to do to my Savior? What will they do to me if I follow the Savior all the way? You must... Comfort your soul knowing that everything is under the control of God. Complete. He has a perfect plan. We rest in that fact. That even if we get shaken and are, are doing things in the dark, Jesus got you and me. We are in his hands. That's why no matter how dark it gets, no one will steal you away from Jesus. And this promise must be received by faith. So that you can be truly safe in his arms. Forever. Unless you're going to share the judgment of the hypocrites. And the God haters. Like the wolves in our story. What we see therefore is that. When the shepherd comes. There are two kinds of responses friends. The wolves bark. Hate. And swallow. But the sheep. Bleat. Grace. And follow. Let us pray.